Hello again, and welcome to episode two of The Deep Dive. I'm your host, John Latiri. My guest today is my friend and frequent collaborator, Dr. Adam Ozemek. Adam is the chief economist for Upwork, which bills itself as the leading online talent solution. His work is covered in an array of fields, including labor market trends, demographics, monetary policy, and immigration. He has a different bio than what you might expect to find for one of the country's most visible and vocal economists. Instead of a booming coastal metropolis, Adam lives in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Instead of academia or a think tank, he works remotely for a Silicon Valley-based technology platform. And unlike many experts and pundits, Adam has a firsthand appreciation of what it means to be a small business owner. So in today's conversation, we discuss how all of this informs his view of the economy and economic policy, including the federal government's efforts to help small business owners like himself navigate the worst economic crisis we've seen in our lifetimes. We cover a lot of ground in this conversation, including the future of remote work, lessons from the last crisis, and how better immigration policy can help fuel a broad-based recovery in the years ahead. Be sure to follow Adam on Twitter at Modeled Behavior. Last but not least, if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, on to the episode. Adam, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, John. Glad to be here. So start by telling us how you got interested in economics and decided to become an economist. So I'm, I'm not one of those fallen physicists or mathematicians who realized they couldn't cut it in the field that they wanted. Um, I wanted to do economics from the start since high school. So I took economics in high school, majored in economics in college, and then sort of went to the world of work and realized that, um, you know, all the fun jobs required more advanced degrees or better empirical training than I had. So that was kind of my path to grad school was um, I wanted to do the fun jobs. And uh, my undergraduate degree wouldn't get me in the door at the fun jobs. Um, actually, the, the job I had before this was at, at Moody's Analytics. And it was the first job I applied for out of college. I didn't, even, I didn't even get an interview there. So I was like, okay, maybe I, need to, maybe I need some more credentials. So I went to grad school and um, did the master's. And again, realized that then I got an economics consulting that the more fun jobs went to PhDs. So continued in grad school while working and consulting to get my PhD so that I could do the fun stuff. So that's really a big part of it for me is that I enjoy it. Um, you, it gives you like a really broad scope that other people complain that economics is like imperialistic. And that's like great from my perspective, because I can, you know, you can, uh, Brian Kaplan was like, had some great advice for someone. If you want to study some weird topic, just go get an economics PhD and then do the economics of that topic. So it really lets you go almost anywhere. So you're the chief economist at Upwork. What is Upwork? Upwork is uh, the world's largest talent solution, online talent solution. And what that means is it's a place where people come to find remote um, independent professionals to do skilled work for them. And we connect people all over the world. You can get things like web, mobile, software development, um, graphic design, marketing, customer service. So it's a wide variety of skills that you can hire independent freelancers for. And we're sort of the, the marketplace for it. We're having this conversation about two months into a once in a century economic crisis. And so it'd be interesting to start with how, and, and that crisis has had a particular effect, a particular effect on how people, how people work, how they access their, their jobs, um, whether they can actually do their jobs at all. So how does, how has the outlook on freelance work and remote work changed in the near term as a result of this crisis? And what do you see in terms of long-term implications? 
I'll start with freelancing. In terms of freelancing, there's been a lot of focus in recent years on the idea that you know everyone's going to become a freelancer, or you know the economy is just growing freelancing, and that's really not my perspective. My perspective is that freelancing is really big, um, but it has been big for a long time. It's sort of always been with us. So I don't really share this view that everyone's going to be a freelancer. Um, and from you know our perspective, that's really not necessary because there are so many freelancers already that you know we just you don't need everyone to become a freelancer it's a huge it's a huge part of the economy it's it always has been um so when you have a recession there's sort of two opposing forces there's there's really people who want to freelance as a long-term career goal and this is it fits their lifestyle they love the flexibility of it they love the independence of it some of them actually a lot of them need to work freelance because of you know disabilities or other like commitments at home and so freelancing is just how they want to work for other people freelancing can provide a temporary sort of stopgap so in a recession you kind of have these offsetting effects where the people who want to work freelancing long term um, might not have that choice as much because you know demand goes down but people who are doing it sort of as a stopgap increase so it's the want to freelance or need to freelance kind of shifts over time but in general i don't see um you know, a, a recession or a shutdown in the economy is necessarily generating a, a ton more freelancers. It's, it's more like, you know, there are already a ton of freelancers. On the remote side of things, I think that's where we do see continued structural growth and increase. This is happening before the pandemic, and um, this is sort of just supercharged it. You know, if you look at census data on this, basically for the last two decades, every year, you have a steady increase in the share of people who work remotely. And I think what we're seeing right now is just a massive sort of trial of that for all these people who hadn't done it before. And so my suspicion is we're going to see, even if most people who are forced to try remote work now don't like it, which I don't think will be the case, but even if that were the case, just like, you know, a fraction of them enjoying it and it working well for them in the firm would be a big increase in the number who work. So I think remote is really going to be a growing part of the future of work. And it's going to be a growing part of the future of freelancing too. And I think that that's, that's what we're seeing right now is that people, the remote part of the economy and remote freelancers are a lot more accessible and there's a lot more continuity there for both the businesses and the freelancers right now. One of the early promises of the internet economy was supposed to be that it would, it would flatten geography and, and make it possible to do things from anywhere. And what we saw instead, at least in the few decades since the internet economy became um, ascendant is just the opposite. You saw bigger returns to agglomeration and, and concentration within certain geographies. Do you think that that promise is still there? It's just taking longer to fulfill it. Uh, that's question one. Question two, is this the action forcing event that helps to create a more broadly distributed economy in terms of where people locate and, and the idea that it really is a viable career path to do the kind of things we've traditionally associated the last 20 or 30 years with concentration of big metro areas, that that's going to happen in a more dispersed way. Yeah, I think uh, yes to both. So I think that what happens when firms do remote is they sort of start by letting their existing workers go remote uh, sometimes. And that doesn't really affect their hiring pool that much. And then they start to say, okay, this is working pretty well. So now I'm going to let, you know, some workers work remote all the time. And now you're starting to expand your hiring pool. Um, but maybe you want people to come into the office every once in a while. So now you're looking, you know, within, you know, go, instead of work hiring within a half hour of the office, 
you're hiring within an hour or two or three. And you sort of work down this remote work intensity scale and you start to just expand your footprint of where you're hiring from. And I think that, um, you know, the, the first immediate effect of remote work then is hiring in, in sort of exurban areas that are near big cities or like smaller big cities near bigger cities. And that's sort of where we see the highest intensity of remote work right now. But as we work further and further out and as people start to go 100% remote and they become very comfortable with it, I think we are going to see more hiring in sort of rural areas and places farther away from big cities. And it's just sort of a gradually expanding reach of firms. And I do think that that is where we're headed. And I do think that this is going to, it's not going to reverse the fact that working in a big city, it remains like, you know, productivity enhancing for some people. Um, It's not going to be the end of cities, but you don't really need it to, to make a big difference. You just need to like tilt the scales a little bit and that can have a huge impact on the margin. Um, And I think that the continued growth of house prices in the biggest, densest, most expensive places, the fact that they just simply... After you know all this time of fighting about NIMBYism, I just don't think that the inroads being made there are very big. I think that ultimately the people that live there want to preserve the the place as they see it, and that's just you know I hope for more progress there because ultimately NIMBYism is bad for the economy. But I'm skeptical of it, and I think that that is sort of pushing and that's a force pushing on the other end towards more remote work. Is that it's just become so prohibitively expensive to operate a globally competitive company in these big cities with these huge uh, expensive costs of, of living. You see, you see the rise of remote work as a another factor, another tailwind for second and third tier cities uh, in terms of their ability to scoop up opportunity and, and access workers that just are turned off or, or simply priced out of the more expensive metros. They're turned off, they're priced out, or they just don't want to live there. Like that's not everyone wants to live in the most dense places. We live in a very diverse country with people with a lot of diverse ways of wanting to live. And, you know, I think a lot of people view moving to the city as what's required in order to access opportunity. And that's what drives them there. Um, Some people want to live in the big city, but I think given the choice to, to live and work anywhere, more people are going to choose, um, you know, second, third tier cities and even, you know, suburban and rural places. You yourself are a remote worker. So uh, for folks who don't know, you live in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You work for a Silicon Valley startup and uh, you're also highly involved in uh, D.C. policy debates. So you've got an interesting footprint in terms of how you apply your expertise and, and how you engage with the broader world of economics and policy. How does that tripartite um, footprint that you've got. Uh, how does that influence your view of that intersection between business and policy and economics? What perspective do you have that um, that maybe others in your profession don't? I, I think it, it leads to a lot of hypotheses that others might not consider when your experience is mostly you know living in the dense urban hyperproductive sort of mega cities. Um, I mean, ultimately, my beliefs are very data driven and empirical. So it's not like I'm Tom Friedman. I'm not going to ride around and hear an anecdote and like that's going to change my worldview. But like it influences the hypotheses that I explore, and that certainly had it certainly has had an effect on sort of my research output, um, the things that I believe about the economy, and I think that it sort of generates 
way thinking about things that are that are different and you know like the the remote work thing is, is an example i think that when you tell someone who lives and works in dc or new york city and they they love it there and this is like the way of life that they imagine and maybe they came from a smaller town and like they just it's it it just checks all the boxes for them career it's great they love the consumption amenities um they don't mind the high cost of living to them the remote work hypotheses might not be as appealing because it just doesn't doesn't click with the way that they work they can't imagine themselves doing it but because i do it it sort of leads me down that path and you know start exploring the data and the um you know the empirical reality there and i think it's just you also you see people who prefer to live a different way and who don't see everyone lives in the big mega cities as like the ultimate be all end all um and, and the only way to live so definitely opens up those ways of thinking Another way that you're a little different from your your peers is you're a small business owner in addition to being an economist. Uh, so you've got a, a restaurant called Decades, a restaurant bowling alley arcade, right? Yeah. Uh, how did that come to be, and uh, and uh, and how is that in particular affecting your your perspective on um, the small business aspect of the current crisis? So we, that started with some friends who I had another small business with, which was based around a beer festival that we ran every year. Um, and so that was our first sort of venue into entrepreneurship and, uh, it went well and we had fun and we're like, let's, what's next, let's do something else. So with those two friends, we started thinking about, you know, what, what's a good fit for Lancaster and, um, and you know, what, what does the place need and what, you know, sort of matches our skills and, uh, this just made sense. So that was kind of how this got started. Just, you know, you start with a small business, you go to a bigger one and, um, it was just a really great fit for the city and people seem to really like it. And, uh, so it, it, doing that definitely affects how you think about small business in a lot of ways. First off, it's led me to like various hypotheses that I hope to study one day about, you know, small businesses and what matters and, you know, it, it influences my thinking on dynamism and entrepreneurship and what are the drivers of it? Cause you really like, for example, population growth as being an important driver of dynamism is something you and I have worked on a lot. And like, you just, when you see it from a small business person's perspective, it's like, yeah, if you live in a shrinking place, it's really hard to be convinced to start a new business there. And, you know, I don't live in a shrinking place and you can see how that matters. So it's sort of the same thing as living in a different place than a lot of people. It's working in a different way than a lot of people. It brings you to different hypotheses that you can look for the answers in the data. And um, like you said, it's certainly influenced my views a lot on on the current crisis and the, the right responses to that. Well, let's transition to that. Uh, you and I have done some commentary together on the, the nature of the crisis and what we think policymakers should be doing to respond. Maybe first set the table for us. How, how bad is, in, in, in particular, the small business aspect of the crisis? What are we seeing right now? Uh, and what do you think policymakers have gotten right and wrong so far? Um, so the big picture is that a huge chunk of the economy is just frozen. Um, if you do face-to-face -face business, your business is effectively frozen in time right now. And what we know is, you know, about one out of six workers are unemployed for this reason. And that this is disproportionately affecting small business and it's disproportionately affecting leisure and hospitality, which is great because like that nexus is just where my business is in between those two things. Um, but that that's, what's happening is that we're trying to pause the economy and you can kind of do that for a bit. I mean, the, 
we deal with seasonality every year. You have the strong season, you have the bad season. And so demand does decline. Um, demand declining to zero doesn't happen, which is what's happening for a lot of companies. But it's like, we're trying to hold it in place. And you, know, you can do that for a bit, but it starts to tear. And we've tried to we've tried to um, put a lot of money into back into the economy to prevent these tears from happening. And you know, the good news is that we are spending a lot. And um, I think we should be, that's not something we should just take for granted that was going to happen. And I think had this pandemic occurred at different points in the last two decades, we might've ended up with a much, much smaller um, policy package, you know, going, going up above $2 trillion is not something that obviously was going to happen. So I do think that that is a good start and uh, shows the willingness to spend, um, which is a lot of progress. And, you know, the, the, there's a lot of money flowing out. And so that will help. But there are a lot of really important holes. And I think that those holes are going to cause the stretching of the economy to turn to tears. And that's probably the biggest risk to a fast recovery is that we're going to tear things. You're going to have companies go out of business and you're going to have the employer-employee relationship break. And some of those 30 million jobs are going to go from you know, pause jobs to go on jobs. You and I have been waging a, uh, an ongoing, um, campaign against, or let's say in the positive, we've been, we've been urging policymakers to do much more on the small business response. So if you were to characterize what, where the shortcomings are there, cause there's, I think what's tough to grapple with in this environment is that the, the normal scale just doesn't apply either on the crisis side or on the response side. So in any other context, what Congress has done so far in terms of small business spending, it's the largest small business spending program in the history of earth. I mean, there's just no precedent. Um, it's many, many, many multiples. It's decades worth of SBA lending and relief compressed into two months, less than that. So just that headline number, uh, the sticker shock that one could get from that is that we've already done a ton and maybe we should pump the brakes. Um, and you know, the irony here is that as we've talked about, before, you could end up doing all that and still not really put a meaningful dent in the trajectory of business closures and permanent layoffs if you don't go far enough. And both of us think we haven't gone far enough. So what's what's missing from the Paycheck Protection Program? Um, and what would you do starting with where we are now? A program that's enacted, it's up and running, it's processed billions in loans. Uh, how would you build upon that infrastructure or would you scrap it entirely? Um, I definitely think the Paycheck protection program helps. Um, it helps people who have had a temporary shutdown in business, but have a good sense that their business is going to return soon um, or have had like a slight slowdown in demand, but can still keep doing some work. So it's very helpful to some small businesses, uh, those with a, the sort of most certainty in their future, who it really doesn't help is if you don't know when you're going to be able to come back to business, you don't know, um, when the government's going to let you open and you don't know what demand conditions are going to be like when you do open. And, you know, it's understandable how they ended up like this because they're trying to incentivize people to keep payrolls on. And as a result, it ends up helping the people who can keep payrolls on, which is the sort of, I guess the intended, but kind of ironic consequence of that is people who are harmed the most are helped the least because they can't commit to keeping people on their payroll beyond the initial period of help that they get from this act. So you get eight weeks of assistance on your payroll, but at the end of that eight weeks, then it's on you. 
and you don't know what conditions are going to look like. Um, the, you know, the Trump administration's reopening plan envisions six weeks of constraints placed upon a lot of different kinds of businesses. And that's at a minimum, that's assuming that you continue to meet the conditions for, um, you know, improving safety. And, you know, even beyond that, we don't know what demand will look like. So it's, it's, it's too much to ask for small businesses to just shoulder the risk of bearing these payrolls for who knows how long. Um, we need to do something to help those that haven't been helped by this program. And what does that look like? So I think that the key way to think about this is paycheck protection was really broad. It you know gave a lot of money to a lot of businesses without really asking you know very hard questions about whether they needed it, and that's good to just like put that money out there into the economy to help small businesses in a very broad, very fast way. But there are parts of the economy that have been damaged much more who need more than that, and for whom this specific kind of aid doesn't help. So. I would suggest that the next approach be sort of more targeted at businesses that have actually um, had significant declines in, in, in revenues and in, in their business outlook. And what we need to do is help improve the viability of these businesses long run. So we don't know when the economy reopens, we don't know what demand is going to look like for these businesses. Particularly, I think we're, we're going to be looking at is like in leisure and hospitality, which is food services and accommodation, recreation, you know, Anything that's really very in in person, customer focused, like that, uh, event spaces, gyms, things like that. So, how do we help them to improve their viability, to make it not just through this immediate period of lower demand, but potentially, you know, a resurgence of the virus in the winter, and maybe next summer? We don't know how long that they're going to be constrained in the short run, the medium, in the medium run. So, how do you improve the viability? Uh, the, our proposals um, are meaning you and I, John, is the lowering operating expenditures by giving them really generous loan terms. So loan to these companies at 0% or close to 0% interest for very long-term uh, loans, 20, 30 years, and let them use these loans very flexibly to you know, refinance their debt, to make capital purchases, to buy inventory, to do things that really lower their operating expenditures and improve their viability. What would you say to people, though, who are worried that if this crisis goes on for a long time and we have a resurgence in the winter and you know a vaccine, if it ever comes, is 18 months, two years away, that we're essentially creating a class of zombie businesses that can't exist in the medium term, even without substantial ongoing support from the federal government and that we'd be better off allowing creative destruction to happen, uh, so to speak, in the near term and let, let that process work itself out so that when there is a chance for real recovery and viability of a business, that that can occur without the carrying cost of two years of a business essentially frozen in amber, not, not able to operate uh, beyond the most minimal um, the most minimal footprint. What would you say to folks who are concerned that we're wasting a lot of money on propping up a class of zombie businesses? A couple things about that. One is that take a step back and look at the sectors that are most at risk right now. And these are sectors that are growth sectors for the economy. You can look at a graph of the share of employment in leisure and hospitality has been steadily increasing for like 80 years now. So basically after World War II, every year more and more people work in leisure and hospitality. So this isn't like textile manufacturing. It's not like there are 
global structural factors that are making this a business that's on the way out. And, you know, it's something that was already weak and, you know, there's just no helping it. So structural growth like that means that when we do sort of return to normalcy, you have underlying positive demand conditions that should help these businesses recover. And it also means that if you can give them a bridge to that future, that a lot of businesses are going to be willing to stick it out because they know that this is a long-term growth sector. So that's the sort of big picture macro thing. The, the other is that you cannot reallocate the economy this rapidly um, without causing significant long-term unemployment. And we saw this in the Great Recession. We saw this in the China shock literature. And when you try to just reallocate the economy, a lot of it really fast, it takes a long time for new job matches to be found. And you're just not going to do that overnight. Especially you're talking about sectors where a lot of these workers are lower skilled. And these are the last people to sort of come back to work after the Great Recession. So you just can't, I, I don't think the economy can do that that fast. So sort of a glide path to keeping businesses who see a path to viability in the future, keeping them in business through the sort of medium term problems is, is going to be very beneficial to the, to, to the macro economy. We're not going to have anywhere close to a quick recovery if you try to tear up all those firms and reallocate all those workers. If you had to take the over-under on the, the statement that we're, we're going to have an 80% economy one year from now, which would you take? That's a great question. You know, I'm not, I'm not an economic forecaster anymore, and it's a really nice privilege to, to not have to do those things. But I, I would say I don't think we're going to have an 80% economy in a year. And part of the reason is because I think that it's going to become apparent what's happening. Um, the kind of bad outcome that we're envisioning, where you have a wave of small business failures, uh, and this, you know, jobs aren't coming back. I think that you already are hearing more and more complaints from small businesses that PPP hasn't been enough. And the media is really starting to cover it more and more. And so I think that as we start to see more failures, as people's favorite restaurants start to close, as you start to see, you know, Main Street transforming um, in everyone's communities, there's going to be a push to do something. And my hope is that it doesn't come too late. But I think that something will be done and that will sort of prevent the 80% scenario. I think if we stop now and don't do anything more, uh, I think the 80% scenario is 80% might be a bit high, but maybe 90%. I mean, 10% unemployment is really high unemployment. So um, I think if we don't do anything else, there's a, there's a good chance of 10% unemployment a year from now. Let's talk about the labor market and what, what's happening here is not very long ago, although it seems like a lifetime ago that we had a record number of workers employed in our economy. And now we're sitting at nearly 15% unemployment and rising. So help us digest the transformation that's occurred so far. How much of what we're seeing is, is already permanent uh, in terms of uh, layoffs and detachments from, from work? How much of this do you think could be temporary if we get our act together quickly? So just give us the, the wide angle view here. Um, so right now, most of the job losses are temporary. If you ask the workers um, whether they are temporary furlough or permanent, most of them are temporary. And so really, when we're looking at somewhere between you know 20 million and 30 million jobs, which first off is just crazy to have that kind of error bands on it, but that's where we're at. Somewhere between 20 million to 30 million jobs lost. Um, this is what's at stake. 
these aren't yet job losses like in a normal recession. And these aren't people who all have to find new jobs, which takes time. This is sort of, it's what's at risk. This is the, this is the size of the pot in gambling terms. And so you gotta, we gotta try to bring as many of them back as possible. And we just, we don't know how much that's going to be. And a lot of it, I think, depends on policy. Let's go back to the last recession and recovery. You've been very outspoken about uh, the quest for full employment uh, pre-crisis and uh, the fact that we, uh, that leading economists and policymakers consistently underestimated uh, how much more slack there was in the labor market and that that cost millions of workers a chance at uh, more economic opportunity, more economic stability, and just overall a healthier economy was, uh, was hampered by that. So we had a, a long, a record long expansion but a very tepid one, a very uneven one, particularly in the early years. What did we get wrong there? And do you see signs of concerns, things to be concerned about now in terms of how we're approaching uh, the response to this crisis? I think the, the big mistake there was just underestimating sort of structural versus cyclical demand or structural versus cyclical factor. Structural means it's like a long-term change that's going to happen no matter what. Um, cyclical means that this is like a short-term um, business cycle driven thing and you can potentially uh, help make it happen faster. And starting in probably 2014, um, you started to hear economists saying things like, oh, we're really close to full employment. This is it. This is as good as the economy gets. All these workers who don't have jobs right now, there's something wrong with them, right? Or something wrong with the economy that's preventing them from getting back to work. This is, the, this is the video games keeping men out of work uh, genre. Yeah, that's one example. It's video games keeping men out of work, or maybe all these people just don't have skills that make them employable in a modern economy. It's, it's really sort of permanent theories. And what happened was that year after year, more people came back to work. And year after year, wage growth remained weak. And year after year, inflation remained below target. And all of these are signs that what we really had was an economy that just wasn't running at full capacity. It, it wasn't um, you know, this massive structural reallocation where everyone is not employable uh, for whatever reason. It was really just we needed, we needed the economy to get past the recession. And I think that this was continually underestimated. And you know, every, every year, there'd be brand new theories about what the real problem was um and every year is just like these complicated you know the economist's sin is like if something's really clever like oh that's really that's great i, I love how like they use like some you know really like deep structural model to explain this and like oh it's, but it was the obvious thing we just we weren't at capacity and like sometimes economists um struggle to accept that the obvious thing is true and you know it goes against a lot of traditional economic thinking about how fast the recovery happens, but um, the problem was that it was just underestimated by policymakers, it was underestimated by the Fed, it was underestimated by commentators, and so we just didn't do enough to help the cyclical recovery end faster. And I think had we done more, we instead of spending you know the last several years just um, doing okay, we could have been doing great, and it would have given workers a much better position to be in right now. And what's going to happen instead is that if we don't 
we don't do a better job of this recovery, you're going to have people who spent the majority of their working careers in a bad economy. So Jay Powell, the Fed Chairman Jay Powell, seems to understand this, and you know, there, there seems to have been a, a major sea change in how in how the mainstream of the economics profession uh, understands the shortcomings that you're talking about and the blind spots that you're talking about. Do you, do you think those lessons have been fully internalized? Um, that's a great question. Um, I think that at the Fed, yes, I think Jay Powell fully gets it. I think they were raising rates too fast and the market kind of panicked back at the end of 2018 and they were just continuing to not hit their inflation target. And I think Powell really, really got it at that point. And there was a real switch in the way that they were talking about the economy and you know what they were saying about rate hikes. And they they weren't taking a firm position. We have X amount of slack left, but they were saying pretty clearly, we don't know how much slack left there is. And so we're really going to try to um, find out and we're not going to get ahead of, we're not going to get ahead of things again. So I think that the Fed gets it, the current Fed. I'm not sure that um, economists widely get it yet. And this is what, you know, one of the worst things about long run about the, the, the virus is that we, we didn't, we stopped the economy before we reached full employment because all these different theories had different predictions about what was going to happen over the next few years. And um, now we're not going to know. And my, my big concern is that, is that economists didn't, enough of them didn't learn the lesson. So another area that you and I have done work on together is in a regional divergence, demographic decline, um, economic dynamism, the, that pot of issues that gets beneath the aggregate numbers of the economy and looks at how different places are faring. And, and in particular, how demographic decline has become one of the major headwinds uh, facing struggling areas of the country. Uh, so as somebody who studies labor markets and demographics, what what do you see in terms of the trend lines and how is the crisis going to intersect with those trends? Actually, the last time we saw such bad demographic numbers was the 1918 uh, Spanish flu era. Uh, and that that was the beginning point in our our, our work when we were visualizing uh, demographic trends in, in the report we released last year. Um, so what how, how do you see the crisis now intersecting with those trends and how how does that play out regionally? Yeah, I think that um, there's there's two things going on, kind of the opposite direction. One is that uh, you know we're going to see a drop in immigration from this. We've already seen a drop in immigration in previous years. The administration is you know cracking down on immigration, and I, I think that that I don't know how temporary or permanent the decline in immigration is going to be, but I think at least for a few years this is going to hold back immigration, which is already heading in the wrong direction. I mean, if a future administration could obviously change the dial net very quickly, and hopefully that's what happens. Um, so I guess that's sort of a political dependent outcome, but the trend so far is towards less immigration, which would exacerbate the demographic decline problems. On the other, and I, the other thing is obviously a big recession will have an impact on places that are farther behind. Those places that are still far behind, when a recession comes there, they have less of a cushion to deal with. They all, you know, households have worse balance sheets, businesses have worse balance sheets. It's just uh, state and local government has worse balance sheets. So all of them are going to be impacted more severely by a recession in places that were already doing well. So those are the sort of things that are going in the bad direction. Going in the better direction, I think, is that I do think that 
we were already beginning to see the beginnings of a turn against living in the most dense urban places as a result of the high cost of living there. And I think that remote work will further help lean against that. And, you know, I'm not picturing like a, a total reversal where like New York population starts plummeting and all of a sudden like rural Iowa is super crowded and, you know, we're back to like, you know, the 1950s allocation of people across space. <clears throat> but I do think we're going to see things sort of move more in that direction. And they were already kind of going in that direction. So I think that the growth of remote work and the fact that, you know, some of the worst hit places in the country, not all of them, but some of them are like really dense areas. Uh, and, and also just, if you think about people's experiences in this, I think they're going to want more space. You've been locked up in your house um, for months in, with no yard or your apartment. Like I think that people are going to want coming out of this. There's going to be, it's going to shift preferences somewhat towards bigger space, more yards, and you just can't have that in the most dense urban areas. So it, it'd be hard to quantify how all those things add up. But I think that in general, those are all sort of pushing against demographic growth in the places where we've seen it so far and helping to push it towards places that kind of need it more. At a national level, we, we shouldn't bury the lead that the population growth and fertility rates and the basic building blocks of uh, a dynamic and, and young labor force are eroding pretty quickly. Uh, we're seeing some of the worst numbers that we've, we've seen in a very long time. Um, so it, when you think of the macro effect that has on the economy, plus the likely, I mean, the already clear decline in immigration we've seen in recent years, plus the prospect that a combination of policy and economic uncertainty could drive that even lower. Uh, how do you see all that playing out in terms of a kind of a break on the national economy? I mean, immigration is such an important part of productivity growth in this country. Um, it's such a big driver of in innovation and, you know, the skilled part of our workforce that if we really see a slowdown in that, that has serious long-term implications for how wealthy we are as a country, how rich we are, how innovative we are. Um, it's really, it's, it's really worrying in that regard. You know, we already were dealing with relatively low um, productivity growth, um, really historically low rates of entrepreneurship, startups and stuff like that. And this is like such a big driver of that, that to see further decline there really makes you worry about long-term sort of economic stagnation. But what do you say to people who looking at a 15% unemployment rate would say, why in the world would we allow more competition for a scarcity of jobs in our labor market from people that are coming into this country from abroad at a time when tens of millions of Americans are unsure if they'll have a job next year and are dealing with an economic catastrophe that you know there's, there's just no modern precedent for? Shouldn't we be, isn't this exactly the right time to be restricting competition for a scarce pool of jobs? It, it's a really common, but far too narrow way to look at immigration, to think of it as merely competition in the labor market. Um, immigration is so much more than that. And that's really just like a tiny little corner of it. So you got to think of the other things that immigration is. It's, it's demand, first of all. So it's people, they come here, they buy or rent houses, they shop in the grocery stores, they pay taxes. Um, so it's part of a growing economic pie. Uh, so you don't just look at the labor supply, you look at labor demand, but even more than that, you know, Im immigrants are, they're more entrepreneurial on average. So they're starting new companies and those new companies hire American workers. 
And they're also, um, you know, very innovative and they are major contributors to the patenting in the U.S. And so really you can't, you can't ignore the impact of innovation in startups and dynamism on employment and uh, productivity growth in the long run. So just focusing on like the competition is really, it's extremely narrow. And I think, um, you know, thinking that way and trying to, trying to create prosperity by reducing the number of people and thereby reducing labor market competition is just, it's just totally backwards. It's just totally backwards. It's not going to, it's not going to deliver better outcomes. Is that particularly true in a, uh, an environment where demographic decline and stagnation is becoming more normal, normalized? Yeah, definitely. I mean, one of the things that, that we've seen in our research together, John, is the importance of population growth for entrepreneurship. If you're thinking of starting a new company and population is declining, that means two things for you. One, it means you're going to have fewer customers tomorrow than there are today and fewer customers in five years and 10 years. And that's a pretty um, pessimistic outlook for a new business. That means you're going to have to take customers from existing companies. It's all zero sum. Uh, the other thing it means is that there's going to be fewer employees and you have to take employees from other companies. So there's no sort of new GDP every year. It's all just a shrinking pie, shrinking GDP pie. And you have to take that competition. And we know that when things are growing, new firms are more likely to hire the new workers and they're more likely to take new customers. And so growth, population growth is a better environment for startups. And as a result, if you look within the US, places that have faster population growth also tend to be higher entrepreneurship places and have more startups. And it's a very, very rigorously established relationship. It's not just looking at correlation, but you know, you can look at causation in about four or five different ways and see a pretty strong relationship between population growth and dynamism. So I think that when you have sort of low rates of uh, native population growth through births and deaths, then you need to help offset that with more immigration. This has become particularly contentious on the right, as I guess what's called national conservatism has has um, become more ascendant, and you have uh, a deeper skepticism about economic dynamism, the role of markets uh, as uh, as the primary guideposts for uh, for policy, um, international competition, and globalization. All of those things have have come under new scrutiny. My my view is, in the long run, that's a good thing. Uh, and while I'm a a big cheerleader for markets, and I, I'm, I guess, what you call a globalist uh, these days. I, I think those of us who believe these things have been ineffective uh, and somewhat lazy sometimes in articulating the benefits and and the reasons to be uh, pro-immigration and pro-trade and uh, pro-economic dynamism. That those things that sound scary to a lot of other people in a period of uncertainty and change need a stronger articulation of why we should structure policy in a certain way, but also in particular, why we should understand the shortcomings or the limitations of those policies. How do you look at all that? Like, If these things are so true, as you and I believe, why do we see an emerging movement to knock down those pillars or to, be, or to at least be deeply skeptical um, that they've actually benefited American workers and the average person over the last 10, 20, 30 years? That's a really great question. And I, I share your assessment that sort of the reevaluation of how globalism, globalization and dynamism works is important. 
But you're right that people are sort of grabbing onto the wrong answers. And I think that the big shift in thinking that I think has to happen is you can't just look towards less government as the solution to adaptation to dynamism trends and uh, disruption in the labor market. You can't just look to less government. You need better government. And I think that the, the, the response on the right has sort of been in the wrong direction. It's, it's thinking of dynamism as something that has to be slowed down. It has to be stopped. We need to sort of, you know, become less globalized and sort of turn back the clock. And I think that what we really need is policies that sort of create the atmosphere where dynamism uh, is a successful driver of productivity and growth. And dynamism isn't just creating winners and losers. And I think that that actually involves in a lot of ways more and better government versus less. But you, you have to understand the nature of, of dynamism. You have to understand the, the nature of globalization and the benefits that it gives and that you know we're, we're in an era of low productivity growth and we're in an era of low population growth. And to try to slow the economy down to reduce globalization and trade as a solution to that really pushes us dangerously in the direction of outright stagnation. And I think that we need to be better at being a high growth, high productivity, high adaptive society versus being sort of a slow growth, low dynamism, sort of not competitive society. Because I think what we're going to find is that if you try to move towards that slow growth, low competitive society, you just you don't have improving conditions in the long run. Those are not those are not conditions for economic growth. And we're going to start to feel more like I think countries in in, in Europe which are, are less dynamic. I agree with all that. I I'm this may be an area where you and I diverge a little bit. I, I see the goal of a highly adaptive and dynamic society is one that's compatible with fairly aggressive um, industrial policy and areas where we we decide that there are certain things worth placing a lot of federal government chips on uh, and and being more engaged and, and uh, interventionist in the market towards ensuring that we have certain types of domestic capacity. And you hear a lot of people using the the pandemic as a reason to say, look, there's there's a lot of tail risk in a globalized um, world and an economy that we should be more proactive in, in hedging against. Uh, where do you come down on that? I, I think when you get down to the nitty gritty of it, really just falls apart. So like, it's easy to, if you start to think about, well, we, we don't make as many masks here now. So when we needed masks, we didn't have masks. So let's get back to making masks. And how do we do that by, I don't know, subsidizing domestic mask making, putting tariffs on imports of masks, some way like that. And towards that path, first off, you have to presume that when we try to do that, we're going to do it the right way. And I'll tell you what's going to happen when we try to do that. You're going to end up um, you know, raising costs for businesses and you're going to end up misapplying it. And it'll be like, oh, well, you know, the Senate passed a bill that puts the tariffs on masks uh, and washing machines. It's like, what? where did that come from? And it's because you, trade policy um, protectionism is done in the most like least effective way possible. 
there's just it's so easy to just sort of tilt the scales towards some domestic companies and against others. And I think the Trump administration has done a really great job of showing us what active tariff management looks like. And it's a mess. And it's like crony capitalism at its worst. So even if like we put the smartest conservative technocrat in charge of deciding who should ideally be tariffed in order to tariff our way towards success here. I just, I don't think it's going to happen. I think it's going to be crony capitalism to death and it's going to end up hurting domestic producers. And so I, I don't see that for public choice reasons, I just don't see that being very viable. And then the other thing is like, if you start to dig deeper into why don't we have masks, you can see ways where better governance would have done it in a modern way instead of a like, you know, what if we preserved the 1950s economy way where we were textile oriented? For example, the Obama administration had con contracted with this um, manufacturing company to, you know, build the equipment to be able to manufacture millions of PPE masks like really quickly. And it was through this defense contract and the company said, here's how we do it here. We can do it. And they told the Obama administration, here it is. And then like, it just, they didn't finish. Like you can do it. You can man manufacture uh, masks very quickly in a very high tech way with modern American manufacturing equipment. Um, and then just that's there, that capacity is there if we need it. But like, we didn't, we didn't do it because government doesn't do a good job of thinking about pandemics. And you can see the same thing sort of happen in, in a lot of other circumstances where like California had in place all these policies to, you know, stockpile what we needed and build temporary emergency hospitals. And like, but then they, um, Jerry Brown got rid of Governor Schwarzenegger's preparedness to save like a couple million bucks a year. And it's like, if you just do things the good governance way, then you don't have to do things the kludgy sort of reduced dynamism way. And that's, that's the direction I would always lean. I absolutely agree with that. However, there's a, isn't there a higher form of industrial policy that says we're going to place big bets on, uh, clean energy and nuclear power on, uh, on life sciences, uh, R and D and innovation, uh, uh, you know, on, on the, on the future of industry on, on AI, on the future of things that we know are going to be, uh, broadly speaking, the drivers of the global economy, uh, and, and even the competition between nation states, uh, in the future. Um, so getting out of the production of goods and materials at a very base case level of how should we have prepared for a pandemic with PPE, most of that could have been solved just by better preparation. There, there didn't need to be any kind of industrial policy intervening at that level. But at a much higher level, there are, I think you'd agree, there are things for which there's no current private market um, or no current non-governmental actor that has the resources or the, or the time frame to address things that have tremendous implications for our national security, for national competitiveness, and uh, and and for the environment in which dynamism can really flourish and create a lot of benefits downstream for everybody. So, isn't there a role for higher? And don't we already accept that there is? I mean, we we already have a defense industrial complex that is heavily weighted towards preserving a, a domestic uh, defense industrial base um, for national security reasons um, and for jobs and political reasons. So that's, you know, the defense example is one that cuts both ways. A lot of people would look at that and say, yeah, why would we want to do that in any other industry? Because it's so inefficient and so such a behemoth that can't be managed now. But for, for many others, including myself, I point to that as, you know, we all accept defense or industrial policy on some level already. That's already baked in. I would either 
change the definition of industrial policy that you're using or draw a dividing line between two different kinds of industrial policy. One is aimed at productivity. It's aimed at innovation. Um, it's aimed at, you know, creating, uh, creating, expanding, you know, the, the productive possibility frontier of the United States. And I see that as something that we've always done, something we should do more of, and something that's you can either call it the good industrial policy or you can call it not industrial policy. Um, I think of things like uh, government grants for innovation, uh, helping universities be centers of innovation and working with, uh, with capitalism to, to produce new and innovative goods. I think of those sorts of things as part of the American fabric of capitalism. It's always been there that we should have more of. We should have more basic research. We should have more grants. We should have more innovativeness. Um, including when the target is not just productivity per se, but productivity and, you know, for example, um, uh, environmentalism. So I'm all for that kind of innovation. I'm all for that, those kinds of subsidies. Um, and even sometimes, you know, subsidizing scale versus just innovation. I think there's a case to be made for that sometimes. Where I see an important dividing line into sort of bad industrial policy is when it's aimed at employment per se. I just don't see industrial policy as being the right approach to creating more employment for a couple of reasons. One is the public choice consider considerations already highlighted. Um, and this is especially true when the way you try to make industrial policy happen is by reducing competition in some way, um, either via tariffs or import quotas or um, you know attempts to reduce domestic competition in some way. I don't think that that, I think that that runs against the other purpose of industrial policy, which is innovativeness and productivity growth. Um, and, and I think that, so public choice and, uh, you know, being low productivity. And I just, I don't see that it, it's such a, it's such a rough cudgel to try to hit employment that way. That I just, I think that it's going to be counterproductive more often than not. And also, more granular, it forces you into certain modes of production. And if you look at things that look like industrial policy are lack of global competition. And so if you think about what did the American automotive industry look like for decades when we held back global competition and before global competition was really strong and it was just, it, it was A, not sustainable and B, created like really bad cars and bad outcomes and bad productivity and like it's trying to reduce competition. I just don't think it's, it's I don't think it's usually long run viable. I think um, it ends up creating more problems than solutions. It's also a great way to ensure that there's more fragility in the system um, and more exposure to, to large scale economic shifts. Yeah. Um, so as an exit topic, uh, I have to, we'll, we'll get away from economics almost entirely and talk about another shared um, fascination of ours, which is, uh, UFOs. And, uh, so this is called a hard pivot in, in podcast land. Um, we, uh, among many other things that, that you and I are, are, uh, share a common fascination with the, the recent emergence of more and more credible evidence of, I guess it's now unexplained aerial phenomenon, uh, UAPs, uh, is something we bonded over. Um, and you're, you and I are both pretty active on on Twitter about uh, highlighting our fascination with this and, and trying to create a little bit of a community of uh, econ walks and uh, UFO enthusiasts. It's a very small club so far, but uh, new members are welcome. Uh, so 
trying to think of where to start here. Like, what is your favorite? What is your favorite bit of evidence that to answer the question of why anyone should take this stuff seriously? Because it's been known as such a such an outpost for cranks and conspiracy theorists uh, for so long. Why should serious people be paying attention? I definitely recommend. I mean, any documentary is going to have. I guess the, the first place to start start with the articles in the New York Times and Washington Post covering the, the 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 navy footage of the the ufos describe that that describe that incident so there's there's multiple incidents that happened um over the last uh decade and a half um where on you have people who in in navy pilots who witnessed with their eyes who witnessed with their um on onboard radar and witnesses in the USS Nimitz in the Princeton, where they were the ships were launching from, on the ship radar, all of these are observing um, phenomenon that's behaving in ways that just don't make sense. And it's really this multiple points of observation and the multiple ways that the same phenomena were observed that I think give it a credibility that just wasn't present in past uh, alleged UFO encounters. So you have it on the ship radar. You have people seeing it with their eyes, like credible pilots. Multiple of them, they see these, you know, either really fast moving things or these really well. They're all fast moving. Something they vary in size, and then they see them on the radar, and they're on camera on the radar, and you can see the video. So, like the multiple points of observation make it hard for it to be explained with something like um, either you know one pilot was making something up uh, or. Uh, it was a failure of one piece of equipment. And so you really start ruling out a lot of these usual explanations. What is your explanation? Um, if I had to rank the explanation, I, I mean, in my mind, it's such a, we're, we're still so in the early stages of this because like interest in it has been unfortunately, you know, limited by the bad reputation that talking and thinking about UFOs has. Uh, I think that, I, I'm much less interested in, in predicting what it is now because there's such high uncertainty around it. It's just like establishing like this is genuinely unknown, weird phenomenon. If you absolutely forced me, I would guess that it's um, human technology that has moved beyond um, what we thought possible, either private or governmental somewhere. Um, I, my next explanation would be such, such natural phenomenon, like a ball lightning is an example of something that you know, used to be believed to be supernatural, but then became to be realized as just, you know, natural phenomena that we had a hard time replicating, but now we can. So those would be my third one and two. And I guess number three would be, um, have to be aliens, but I don't put that at the top. It's just too, I think that it's hard to, it's hard to really make evidence-based justifications for any of them. But I think that the first two required the least amount of things to be different than we know. It's safe to say that if either of us were president for a day, this is probably the only thing we'd be uh, asking our our uh, our staff to go hunt down for us. Because I I can't imagine the temptation, being able to resist the temptation of knowing uh, the full scope of what what is known. But but to your point, that what seems clear aside, if you rule out a natural phenomenon, you've got objects accelerating and decelerating in a way that would be impossible for a human piloted craft. You have no exhaust signatures. You have just the behavior of the objects defies normal physics or certainly any kind of known technology. So it seems like it's important to know something about that because the implications could be enormous. And I always think the lack of curiosity 
in having an answer. Now that the Defense Department has confirmed these are actual videos and you've got major national outlets reporting on it as serious news, there is kind of a, a blasé response to it on some level that seems strange. And of course, now we have a lot of other things going on in the world that are that seem more immediate. Um, but uh, you know, we tried and failed to get this to be a, a question that candidates get asked in in the debates. But I think it rises to that level. I mean, it, it, uh, one would think that this is something that there should be a policy to uh, to address in some way or some kind of strategy to address. Yeah, it it should be a national political issue, and I think that one of the really important distinctions, and this sort of explains why people seem to not care that much. I think it's because they've been they're used to decades and decades of pretty not persuasive evidence. And it's sort of they file it as like, oh, this is that kind of thing where like and I recently took a look back at some of this because, you know, now that I'm sort of changing my views about UFOs and I, I'm, a, I'm like a skeptic person. You know what I mean? Like when I was in high school and college, like I subscribed to Skeptic Magazine. Like I'm not like this is not fit within all my other views nicely. Like this is very different for me. Same for me as well, by the way. So I went back to look at sort of old UFO evidence to see like, okay, now that my priors have sort of changed a little bit because of these videos, like, will I find old UFO evidence to be convincing? And like, also then, you know, should I worry that like, this is just the way I think changing or something, but all the old evidence is still really like not that convincing to me. Like I watched UFO hunters on history channel and looked up all the famous, most famous incidents. And it's all like, three slowly moving red balls in the sky like that's it like and you're all like there's some footage of it from way far below but like there are so many things that humans can do that could be three slowly moving red balls in the sky it's just that's not like and the other big difference is that almost every single time the u.s military would come out and say this is what it was they would say it's flares or it's weather balloons or it's f-35s And when they didn't, you can easily say like, oh, well, that's like stealth bombers or something like it's a it's a squadron of stealth bombers and they don't want to say what it is. It's so those the best explanation is so readily available and the government says this is what it is. And that, by the way, is why it used to be a conspiracy theory, because the government would tell you one thing. And so in order for them to be wrong, they would have to be lying. They'd have to be covering it up. They have to know the truth. And that takes into a whole other category of crazy, whereas now the government says we don't know. We don't know what it is. Like the government has been blaming stuff on weather balloons for decades. If they thought it was a weather balloon, they'd say it was a weather balloon. And so I think that that distinction, that change in, uh, you know, not very persuasive UFO evidence to really weirdly persuasive UFO evidence. I think people are a little, little behind the curve on it. And they're assuming that what they're going to hear about and see is just like the old stuff. And it's really not. Besides UFOs, how are you using your quarantine time uh, for reading, watching, uh, consuming new stuff. What, what's uh, grabbed your attention recently? Oh, boy, it's so busy. I mean, just because we haven't really had a slowdown at work, at Upwork. It's not, this is not like, we're not shut down in any way. The way, you know, we are a remote working company. I always work remote and remote work has become more important than ever. Um, our clients and freelancers are not seeing any sort of slowdown. It's like just total continuity for them. So there's not less work for me to do. There's more work. Um, and then in addition, like just because decades is shut down, doesn't mean there's not like lots of stuff to do. We're always trying to figure out what are we going to do? How are we going to reopen? What's reopening going to look like? And then the third thing is 
everything you and I have been doing on trying to propose policy solutions to address this crisis and you know trying to convince people that you know the policy ideas that we have are the right ones and talking to people about other policies and so like that's that is how i'm mostly spending my time this is like the opposite of having free time available i'm very envious of the people who are like bored right now i would i would kill to be bored there's no time for it <laughs> well and you and you we both have small kids in the house as well so which it's, yeah. it is a miracle we've gotten an hour into this conversation and there has been no crying in the background uh, for either of us well uh, adam thanks so much for coming on uh, the podcast and best of luck with decades and everything you're doing uh, thanks for doing this thanks john glad to be here okay that's it for this episode of the deep dive i want to thank adam mozamek for joining me again you can follow him on twitter at modeled behavior Special thanks to Abby Gadara for her help in producing today's episode. Join us again next week for a lively discussion on demography, democracy, and much more with AEI adjunct fellow Lyman Stone. I'm always grateful for your feedback and ideas. You can find me on Twitter at DC. Shoot me a message and let me know what you think. And if you want to support this new show, please remember to subscribe and leave a glowing review on iTunes or Stitcher. Until next time, be well and thanks for listening. <laughs>